0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Connection with the sermon this afternoon, I invite you to turn to Joshua chapter 24. And we'll read the verses 1 through 27. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I signed the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried out to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He covered the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you to the the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the, Jericho and came, uh, the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did all the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, And cities which you did not build and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him in all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshiped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord, because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you. After he has been good to you, but the people said to Joshua, "No, we will serve the Lord." Then Joshua said, "You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord." Yes, we are witnesses," they replied. Now then," said Joshua, "Throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel." And the people said to Joshua, "We will serve the Lord our God and obey Him." On the day Joshua made on that day. Joshua made a covenant for the people, and there at Shechem he drew up for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Now we'll turn to the New Testament. To Romans chapter 1, I'll read a number of verses there, Romans chapter 1, 18 through 23, page 747 of your pew Bibles. We continue to read here the word of the Lord. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Our text this afternoon is the first commandment as it is explained in the Heidelberg Catechism and confessed there. Question and answers 94 and 95. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. Further, that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in him alone, Submit to him with all humility and patience, expect all good from him only, and love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. In short, that I forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing against his will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of, or in addition to, to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, you know what the greatest commandment is, don't you? I would expect that you know what the greatest commandment is. It is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In the first half of the Ten Commandments, that is expressed in more detail what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And in this first commandment, we see that it is to love the Lord your God exclusively. Exclusively. God's Word teaches us that that love is the greatest thing. It's the greatest gift. And to love the Lord your God is the greatest commandment. There's something... Deeper and more beautiful, however, when love is expressed exclusively. Love for your neighbor is good, but there's something richer and more profound that a husband has in his love for his wife, or that a wife has in her love for her husband. A love for your relatives is good, but there's something more profound in in loving your father or in loving your mother. The first commandment, the Lord commands us to love Him exclusively, because that is the only way to love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God exclusively. That's our theme this afternoon. And we'll consider the choice that we have to make choosing God. We'll also consider the one true God, or the the one God whom we are to love, and thirdly, the true God whom we are to love. Love the Lord exclusively. So we start by speaking about choosing God. So why would we start talking about, you may be asking, choosing God at a time like this? There's something of a, of a pious, reformed, knee-jerk reaction to the very word that I've included for the first point of the sermon, choosing God. It makes us think about Arminians. And it makes us think about their ideas about free human choice in the context of salvation. Uh, There has been a lot of struggle in the church about that very topic, about that very doctrine. And so we find it easier often just not to speak about the word at all. But brothers and sisters, we should talk about the word choose. It's an important word. We should be comfortable using it, of course, only in the right context. Choosing is very important. In fact, you could say we don't have a choice. We have to choose. We have to choose. We have to choose between serving the one true God alone and between choosing other gods with a small g. We have to choose between serving the one true God, big G, And other gods, small g. Now, just for a moment, you might find that distinction between the big g god and little g false gods to be kind of old-fashioned. No one walks around today, or at least not many people that we see on a daily basis wearing a little god around their neck. Or putting a god on their mantle to worship him. People do in our culture, but not very many of them. We live in a time when we talk about people who don't even recognize God, atheists, agnostics. How does this commandment apply to them? Well, when the first commandment forbids the worshiping of other gods, it's speaking about Krishna, Allah, and other gods like them, other so-called gods. It's speaking about the gods of the major world religions, but... It's speaking about many other things beyond simply those gods. The the gods of Hinduism, of Sikhism, the god of Islam. Someone has spoken about the human heart as a factory for idols. A factory that produces false gods. The human heart creates gods, small g, of many kinds. Your God, according to one person's helpful definition, is what you love, seek, worship, serve, and allow to control you. Those are the gods that we're primarily speaking about this afternoon. Whatever you love, seek, worship, serve, and allow to control you. So the first commandment urges us then to make a choice. There's two options here, and there's only two options. Either you are seeking, you are loving, seeking, worshipping, serving, and allowing to control you the Lord God, or you are serving other gods. You can't sit on the fence on this one, and there's no sort of holy hesitance that allows us to sort of survey the landscape, uh, uh, sit on the sidelines and and make a proper, informed, intentional decision. The reality is, whether you realize it or not, you are making this decision every day of your life, in pretty much everything that you do. Either you are loving, worshipping, serving the Lord God, or you are not. In which case you are serving false gods, other gods, gods either of your own making or the gods that you have borrowed from the culture around you. Those things which are important, which people love and seek and serve and allow to control them. The catechism supports this idea that the first commandment is urging us to make a choice by the language that it uses. And you can see that right there. It speaks about Uh, avoid and flee. It tells us to forsake. It tells us to love, know, and trust. So clearly, you shall have no other gods before me is a command to choose to worship the Lord. And this isn't a once-for-all decision. In the big scheme of things, you could say the once-for-all decision is God's. God makes his decision in eternity, and he works it out. The decisions that we need to make are from day to day, are constantly. Making that choice to avoid and flee idolatry, false gods, all the time. So to be clear, we aren't talking about choosing God in in those ultimate terms that the the canons of Dort, for example, lays out, the Arminian-Calvinist debate. No, no. Choosing to set about God's in our hearts is our responsibility and obedience within the covenant that God has made us. It is because God has chosen us as His own. It's because God has claimed us for us us as His own in our baptism that we need to respond and choose to love Him every day. It's part of the thankful obedience for what God has done for us. This kind of choosing was exactly what Joshua laid out before the Israelites in Joshua 24. And that's clear, you can see that there in that in those verses. You don't need to look it up. At the beginning verses 2 through 13, he recounts what the Lord has already done for the Israelites. He called Abraham out of Ur, he led him through uh, the wilderness, into Canaan. He took the Israelites out of Egypt. God has saved Israel from the Egyptians, Amorites, Moabites, Canaanites. And then, after recounting what the Lord has done for them, then Joshua commands the Israelites to choose. Throw away the gods that your forefathers made. Verse 15, he says those memorable words. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, if serving the Lord who has done all these things for you seems undesirable, and choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your for- that your forefathers served beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites, or the gods in the land of your living. There's lots of other gods you can serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So brothers and sisters... We must choose. Every day, we must consciously and intentionally serve to, to worship and to love and to serve the triune God who has created us and redeemed us and not to serve anything or anyone else. Really, if we pull back again into the context of the greatest commandment, this is a choice to love the Lord your God and to love Him alone. And so to do this, what we need to do is to remove everything that hinders us from loving God. That's how we carry out this command. By removing everything in our lives that hinders us from loving God. It's the heart that is the factory for idols. God can see into your hearts. I can't. No one else can. So, I'll ask some questions for you to consider. Is the love of your heart, is what is controlling your heart exclusively in the hands of the Triune God? Is there something that keeps you from wholeheartedly heartily? Committing yourself to the care and to the plan of your Father. Does God the Father's plan cause you pain? Cause you to get upset? Cause you to leave Him? Is there something that is causing that in your heart? Something you love more than what He has willed for you? Is there something or someone... That Jesus would say to you, you need to cut that out of your life because it is diverting your attention from me. I am the Redeemer. I am the Savior. Are you looking to something else to save you? Are you looking to something else to satisfy God? Is the Holy Spirit the one who is directing your heart's love Or does something else get behind the wheel every now and again when you let it? When you go to the casino, when you go to the bar, when you go out with your buddies. You allow that to get behind the wheel of your heart and to drive it in its own direction. And if there are competing gods in our hearts, we need to get rid of them radically, if you would avoid if you would choose to avoid uh, you would do this just like you would choose to avoid and flee a prostitute who would come up to your door while your wife is gone or your husband is gone and you would do that because you've committed yourself to love your wife and her alone and so you need to avoid and flee shut the door walk away from the things that are taking, that are compromising your love of God. You need to remove everything that hinders your love for God. But, brothers and sisters, you also need to cultivate that, which sustains the bond of love for your Father, for His Son, and for the Holy Spirit. Just like loving your your wife or your husband requires that you understand Him, that you know what makes him tick, that you you search out what gives him joy and pleasure. So too, choosing God, choosing to love God, means choosing those things which God loves. And so cultivating that bond of love, And how do you do that? Well, you express your love in prayer and in praise. You submit yourself to his will. You listen attentively to his words for you. You experience deep fellowship with His other children around you. You explore the person and the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And many more things. They're all, in fact, laid out in God's Word. And so to cultivate the bond of love with God, we need to cultivate our passion and attention for God's Word. That is how we, we grow more and more in obedience to the first commandment. To love the Lord your God alone. Your relationship with anyone grows when you, when you listen intently to what they have to say, when you, when you diligently try to, to understand more about them. And it's no different with your Father in heaven, with the Son at His right hand, and with the Holy Spirit who lives in your heart. It's true especially of our love for the triune God. And so we, brothers and sisters, we need to choose God. We need to choose, going to our second point, the one God. The choice we're making is between exclusive love for the Lord or for something else. That something else which will necessarily be others, plural. This is really what the commandment is all about. It's about recognizing, choosing, loving, and worshiping the one true God. In Deuteronomy 6, before Moses gives the law, he states that oneness of God clearly. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The Lord is one means the Lord is the only one. He is the only God. He is not many like the gods of the other nations. He won't share his position as the exalted God with anyone else. He is one. He is the only God. And in fact, this emphasis on the exclusiveness of God is is captured in in a little bit of wordplay that happens in this first commandment as well. The word for gods in the commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, is in fact the word that in other places in the Bibles can be used to refer to God, our God, Elohim. You shall have no other Elohim before me. And so you could say, you shall have no other big G God before me. There's another God out there, but don't have him, have me. But that's not right, because there is only one God. And every time that the word refers in the singular to God, it's speaking about the one God. And this wordplay then reveals a, a profound truth that while there is only one true God, there are many false gods around. So, pretenders to be God. To cease to be an exclusive worshiper of God, then, is to become a worshiper of the many. Again... Think of love in the context of a marriage relationship. In marriage, you're bound by oath to an exclusive relationship with one person. But then to break that oath, to break that exclusive relationship, really, there's no good in any any exclusivity after that. There's only the exclusive love for your wife, and if you break that, then you are a lover of the many. The serving of many gods is called polytheism. And that was, in fact, the major religion of the day, both in the times that Joshua wrote in and in the times that Paul wrote in in Romans chapter 1. The Israelites knew only too well, as their history would show, they knew only too well the gods of the other nations. The the Egyptians had a whole pantheon of gods, Ra, the sun god, Uh, Anuket, the Nile goddess. The Babylonians had many gods. Joshua speaks about them, saying that Abraham and his fathers used to serve those gods when they lived in the land of Ur. The Canaanites had many gods, Baal, Asherah, etc. These people were polytheists, and they literally had pictures and statues and and representations and, and trees and poles that were the gods that they served, which they used to serve them. That is idolatry. Now, this first commandment speaks about idolatry, but I would imagine that this sort of idolatry that the Canaanites and Egyptians and and the Babylonians took part in is not the sort of idolatry that really affects you too much. I'd be very surprised to learn if any of you have little figurines at home that you bow down to and worship, or wouldn't it be strange, kids, if, if your parents had a tree in the backyard that they called God? Of course, that's strange. And... Again, it would be very surprising to learn that anyone does that. But yet, we need to realize that this tendency toward loving, serving, and worshiping gods remains a problem for us as well. It's not that we're so advanced and enlightened that we know their folly and we no longer participate in it. Many people might not define themselves as polytheists, but if we were to uh, put them down on the operating table and give them a spiritual autopsy, open up their heart, we'd find that there are many idols living there. There are many things in which even we place our trust. That's really what polytheism was all about. The people had many gods, but it was what those gods represented that really mattered. They had gods for rain. They had gods for sex, they had gods for wealth, gods for good crops. And so the the gods of the polytheists, of the Canaanites, Egyptians, and Babylonians, were just really physical manifestations of the gods that lived in their hearts. Of the idols that their, their hearts' desires had created. They wanted more sex, and so they made a god for that. They wanted rain at the right time, and so they made a god for that. And these idols are idols that our hearts are capable of creating today as well. Idolatry, as the Catechism explains it, is having or inventing something in which to put our trust. That's really what idolatry is all about. It's about finding trust in something. It's about controlling and manipulating situations in order to appease your own troubles, your own heart, to make you feel better. People who long to find safety, satisfaction, and pleasure will naturally create idols in an attempt to gain those. And if you're not seeking your safety, your satisfaction, or your pleasure in the one true God, then you're seeking it in an idol of your own making, an idol of your heart. Love for God adores His ways, adores His providence, adores His timing, adores the way that God does what He was does and the way that you experience those blessings. Idolatry is a rejection of the Lord's ways, saying to the Lord, your ways are good enough for me, I have to take matters into my own hands. It's a rejection of His providence, of His wisdom. Idolatry is focused on getting what you want, Rather than submitting to what God wants, A look at this list in answer ninety in, in answer ninety four. It speaks about idolatry and then witchcraft, superstition, and prayers to saints and other things. And so you might wonder, perhaps you wondered as we read this, do people any even maybe we're not polytheists like in in times of the Bible? But do people even do any of these things anymore? Witchcraft, superstition, prayers to saints? Well, they certainly do. But in many ways, those were the idols of bygone times or of other cultures. It's true that the dangers of the occult and of, of popular spirituality, they offer to us false gods to love. But what our culture specializes in is not these, but in certain kinds of idols. The idols today, however, have lost their religious garb. Uh, we don't take sex and, and name it something else. We don't take wealth and, and give it the name of a god. We just call it money, sex, power. Those are the gods of our culture. Idols are what grab you and what compel you to do the things that you do. Isn't it true? That in our culture, money, sex, power, notoriety, fame are the things that are motivating so many people's actions. And if we allow it, motivating our own as well. But brothers and sisters, the idols of money, sex, power, or any others have not delivered you. They haven't saved you from your lost and miserable condition. In fact, they've only contributed to it. these They do offer momentary pleasures, temporal safety, shallow satisfaction, but they are mere imposters to the one true God, the only God. It is to him that we, we owe all our thankfulness and praise. It is in his hands that that all the history of the world is contained, in which all the providence of our lives sits. Seeking safety in, in the God of money is not going to help. Money can't do anything for you. It's just as blind and deaf and dumb as the idols of Psalm eighty one. God is a God who can do something for you. Don't let the idols of our culture, the idols of your heart, compel you. Worship the Lord, the one God. Worship Him alone. Worship the true God. It's our third point. The true God. Over and against the many gods... Often expressed in idolatry, God calls us to to worship Him, the true God, the triune God, who is true and in whom is truth. This is what the first commandment instructs us to do positively, as the catechism succinctly put it, to rightly come to know the one true God. This commandment has a tremendously positive aspect to it, Despite all the ugliness and and slavery that there is serving false gods, there is power and beauty and freedom in the one true God. There is life in getting to know Him. There is life in having faith in what He's done for you and entrusting Him with your life. He is, after all, God. If we want to appreciate just how ugly and despicable and useless idols are. And we should spend some time considering the beauty of the triune God. Who is this God that we serve? He's the creator. He is the creator and sustainer of the whole universe. And he has revealed himself through what he's made, Paul tells us in Romans 1. And he's revealed himself more specifically in his word. And although our hearts would be prone to distort our conception of him, God is also the creator of new hearts. And through the work of the spirit we understand, we appreciate, and we can worship and love him as he is, the one true God. He is the God who created the universe, he's also the God who created you. Whether you know it or not, whether you appreciate it or not, I always find in in speaking to unbelievers, this is a profound place to start. That God has also created them. God has created all of us. He's not just the creator of everything out there. He's the one who made you. He he knew you before you were. He formed you in the womb of your mother. He owns you. And he has every right to be worshipped and adored by you exclusively... You're not a self-made person. Good looks have never given you anything. Wealth did not make you in its image. God has. God made you in His image. And so your love and your trust and your affection is rightly placed in Him. He's incomprehensible. And yet He makes Himself known. He's incomparable because He's the only true God. He's infinitely exalted over His creation, over time and space and every creature. He's vast and transcendent. He's holy, almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing. And yet He is profoundly with you, with us. He's the one true God. And He's the triune God. He's the Father who created you. He's the Son who redeems you. He's the Spirit who sanctifies you. God the Eternal has made Himself known through His Word. And the Word became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. What idol has ever come to sympathize with you in your frailty? You feel weak and you need help? And you look to... Power. Does it sympathize with your lost condition? What idol has ever suffered and died for you? Idols are cruel masters who are never satisfied. God is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger and He's abounding in steadfast love. He's the God who reaches out to you. He's perfectly satisfied with you. Through the work of His Son on your behalf, Jesus Christ. And as if the Word made flesh was not enough to draw our hearts to, to love the Lord our God alone, He's given us His Spirit to lead us on, to guide us, to fill us with love for Him. The true God is the triune God. One in essence, three in persons. He's the God who has created, redeemed, and guides you through all of life's paths. He's the one true God. And He is the only God that is worthy to worship, to serve, to love, to seek, and to allow to control you. He's the God who incomparably Incomparably, it's not even a, a comparison or a question. He's the only God who loves you. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.